Well, open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and uh, we're going to come to the end of these two letters that we've been studying. And uh, I've, I don't know if you've noticed, but um, this last letter, the 2 Thessalonians, it's a bit of a stormy letter. There's a lot going on um, from concerns that people had about the day of the Lord. I mean, he talks about the day of the Lord, the judgment. He talks about the return of Christ. He talks about what's going to happen to those that rejected Jesus. Uh, he talked about false apostles misleading people. He talked about lazy sluggards rebelling against God. It has not been a peaceful letter. But we end on the subject of peace. It is on peace that we find our resting point in this letter because at the end of the day, God's method to get you to a place of peace and to fill you with peace is not to hide your eyes from the turmoil or the storms, but to equip you to stand in the midst of all of it. The world's idea of peace is quite different. We're going to read this verse a little bit later, but when Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not that the world gives, that's important. Because the world's idea of peace is, is artificial in every sense. The world's idea of peace is to make it so it doesn't seem like there's a storm around you. And you know that can't last, right? You know that that's not a permanent situation. We find ourselves in a place of peace. You know, if I were to say, if we went through the mall and said, what, what does peace mean to you? People are probably going to think of a tranquil, quiet time in the bathtub with bubbles and a, and a serenity CD or something, some candles, essential oils, whatever. They're, they're, they're enjoying their time. Nothing crazy's going on. But you know that those are very temporary moments in your life. You can artificially construct these things. It's why they have spas, right? You go in and they make you feel like there's nothing wrong in the world. I'm, I'm just assuming this is what it's like. I've never myself taken a spa day. Uh, and if you want to give me a spa day, I will pass it on to my wife and she'll love you forever. But it's not my thing. It really isn't. But I imagine that's what it's like. You go in, they can put some hot rocks on you or whatever. It's uh, beautiful music. I'm going to stop assuming stuff because I don't know. But you know what I'm talking about. There's a, we can put ourselves in environments where it doesn't feel like there's anything weird going on. I mentioned Disney World earlier. You know, Disney World is, is a, these folks at Disney are amazing at making you think that everybody's happy. Yeah, <laughs> right? They call it the happiest place on earth, and I scoffed at that because we went to Disneyland when I was a kid, but when I, the first time we went to Disney World as an adult, I was amazed. It's true. You don't know why. From the smells to the sounds to the way everybody's just freakishly smiling at you, you become convinced that this is the happiest place on the planet. But it's all fake. You had to pay a lot of money to get that feeling. Right? And you know, those workers don't go home and just say, well, you know, go through their Mickey Mouse existence. They have lives. And life has a way of, I'm not talking about the life of Christ, I'm talking about the act of living has a way of disrupting that peace pretty quickly. So you can, for, for a moment, you can meditate long enough, you can, you can listen to this peaceful music, you can get on top of a mountain and create an artificial sense of peace, but it's not real. It, it can't withstand the burden of life, the burden of living. But the peace that Jesus offers, he says, is not like the world gives. 
Because the world's version of peace relies on nothing going on out here to disturb the peace. Jesus' offer of real peace is not contingent on circumstance at all. In fact, he's so bold about it that he goes ahead and promises you that peace while at the same time telling you in the world you will have tribulation. But in me you have peace. So his peace is so far from artificial that he's willing to tell you, rely on my peace when everything around you says you have no reason to be peaceful. We've talked about this plenty of times before, so I won't belabor the point, but the joy, the peace, the satisfaction that we have is different than the world's offer of it because everything the world has to offer is from the outside in. Put yourself in a place that's peaceful. Lie on a peaceful beach with peaceful music and nice weather and you'll feel peaceful. That's outside working in. But the peace that Jesus offers is from the inside working out. And that's real. That's real. You could spend a year talking about peace from different angles because even in the scripture, it means different things. It all has the same root, but uh, we talk about peace as in peace with God because we were at war. We were enemies. God didn't make himself our enemy. We made ourselves his enemy. And now Jesus made peace in the cross, peace between brothers and sisters. So he talks about like, like staying out of strife and talks about the righteousness bringing peace and, and, and that Christ, who is our peace, has broke down the dividing wall. So that's a different type of peace that we're talking about, but it's the same root. And then we talk about peace, a sense of wholeness, uh, not even a sense of wholeness because sense implies that it's not real. You just feel that way. It is real wholeness. The Hebrew idea of shalom meant nothing missing, nothing broken, everything whole. It was not a surface condition. It, it, it encompassed everything. So when they, wished when they wished their friends shalom upon leaving or exiting, it was not merely a nice how do you do. It was, it was a blessing of peace. Jesus said to his disciples, when you go into a, a village and they receive you, if, if you find a man of peace in that village that takes you into his house, he says, you will, you will stay with them. Don't go, and then when you leave, your peace will remain with them. What does that mean, your peace will remain with them? There is, I and mean, we don't have time to really get into that, but there is this idea of a supernatural well wholeness fulfillment that comes that is not just the absence of war and strife, although that's there. It's not just saying, you know, peace is in a, a calm, tranquility. It's, it's a true wholeness. It's, it's un being unbroken. Nothing's missing. Nothing's broken. Jesus paints pictures. You know, it's interesting right now because when we're looking at the news just as we talked about earlier when we prayed, when we're looking at the news, we're seeing storms and, and the destructiveness of nature and what the storm is doing to everything that's built. It's interesting how often the Bible uses, especially Jesus, Jesus uses storm imagery so often. Talks about the man building his house on a solid foundation versus the man building his house on sand and says when the, the wind and the storms come, 
One man's house is blown down. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like hurricane-level winds and rain to me. A house is being blown down? That's not just a prairie gust. That's something intense. But it says, the man who dug down and heeded my words and did what I said and dug down deep till he got to a foundation that was secure, his house, though the wind slamming in it, though the rain slam against it, though the storm slam against it, his house will stand through the storms. He's stormproof. Then not only did Jesus use storms in his parables, he actually demonstrated it in real life. I mean, don't you guys find it weird that the time that Jesus decides to show his disciples he can walk on water is in the middle of a storm? And don't you find it interesting? You know in that story, it's storming. They, it's storming so bad. It's not just a, uh, I mean, these are professional fishermen. They've been through storms. This is a storm where they're convinced they're going to die. So it could be the worst storm they've ever seen in their life, and they spend their life on the sea. This is their living. And yet in the Sea of Galilee, when the storm is raging and they're freaking out and they think they're going to die, Jesus is walking on water and he calms the storm, but he doesn't calm the storm until he gets in the boat. He doesn't need to calm the storm to walk on water. He doesn't need to calm the storm for Peter to walk on water. In fact, Peter is unaffected by the storm until he gets scared of the storm. It's not the storm that stopped Peter. It was the fear of the storm. So you wonder, why does Jesus prepare us for storms? It's because the truth of his word brings faith. And faith in us prepares us for the moments when the storm comes. But it's his power that's going to help you to stand. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we've gone through some stormy stuff. We get to this place where he says, now, in verse 16, may the Lord of peace himself. Can, so, so peace is not something he has. Peace is something he is. May the Lord of peace himself continually, over and over again, not just a one-time thing, not just a lay hands on you at the altar, now you have peace. Like continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Then he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We're going to talk about verse 16 for a minute, but maybe you wonder why verse 17 was necessary. Right? I didn't learn this verse as a memory verse in children's church. <laughs> like, uh, this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. We, that's not a memory verse kind of verse. It's not a t-shirt verse. Why is that in there? Well, you might remember that earlier in the letter, I don't know if you guys remember, he was talking about certain apostles, in quotes, apostles, self-proclaimed apostles that were saying that the day of the Lord had already come. And he said, some are saying it like out of, they got a revelation or they saw a vision, but he said, some as if a letter from us which kind of implies that there were people claiming that they had a revelation that the day of the Lord had already happened, and they're waving around a letter and saying, actually, Paul wrote a letter that said it happened, right? So they're frauds. 
and he's getting drawn into it. So he's saying, guys, I'm writing this part with my own hand. This is the way I write. You see it in every letter. If you don't see this, it's not from me. Just very practical, right? That's my signature. This is my handwriting, okay? So don't believe, the, don't believe the hype. Don't believe the lies everybody's spreading. I didn't send you those weird letters. This is, this is why, the way I write. But in verse 16, it's so important that he says, may God, may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, want, I wonder if you would notice a pattern in this letter. I've noticed a pattern, and I think you will too if you, t- if you look closely. In 2 Thessalonians, at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, he talks about persecution, right? They're under persecution. He says that those that afflict them will themselves be afflicted. In fact, he goes all the way to say those that continue and do not turn around will face the result of their own actions in eternal destruction. And he tells them to stand firm. Don't you worry. Through all of this, through all this affliction, through all this persecution, you're going to be okay through all this. So verses 1 to 10 He's giving them some truth, all right? He's giving them truth to hang on to. What does the truth do? It, 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 it obviously distinguishes the lies. It, it brings light into darkness. It brings hope. It brings faith, right? The word of God produces faith in us. But now, in verse 11, he says, To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness, and the work of faith with power. So already, you see what he does. He sets them up. He says, here's the issue. Here's the problem. Here's the truth that's going to set you free. Here's the faith. And here's something to give you faith. And here's how you act on your faith. But then he says, I know you can't do it by yourself. I mean, you need the truth. You need instruction. We need teaching. We need to know what God is asking and what God desires for us. We know what God's commands are. But you also got to know that our job is to act in faith. God's job is to get it done. So he gives you the weapons. He gives you the truth here and says, now act on it. But then by verse 1 through 10 is instruction. Verse 11, he's saying, now may God get this done in you. I want, I want you to know I'm praying that God will do this in you. That God would fulfill every godly resolve, every desire for goodness that you have, and the work of faith with power. By the time we get to chapter 2, he begins to talk about the Antichrist. He begins to talk about the end, what it's going to look like. Talks about them, even though all this stuff happens. And this is going to be a lightning moment for everyone. This is going to be a moment that shakes the world. He tells them about it in verses 1 through 11, sorry, 1 through 12, 1 through 15, I'm sorry. 1 through 12, he tells them about it. 13 through 15, he gives them some instruction about them. But by the time we get to verse 16, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. So the pattern continues. Give them instruction. Give them truth. Tell them about what's going to happen. Tell them what they need to do. But now I'm going to pray for you. 
Because you can't do this by yourself. By the time we got to chapter 3, he's asking them to pray for him. Then he says that there are those that are evil, those that are disobedient to God, that are persecuting the church. But then he says in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Then by the time he gets down to verse 5, he says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Then he goes on and he begins to talk about those that are in rebellion, that are not obeying the command of God, that are being sluggards, that are taking advantage of everybody else, that are walking in a manner contrary to what they've been taught. And you might think, okay, so there's instruction. Here's what you need to do. But then he wraps this up by saying, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. So the pattern you see in this this letter is, I'm going to give you instruction. I'm going to help you distinguish between the truth and the lie. I'm going to give you truth. I'm going to speak the word so that faith comes. I'm going to tell you how to use that faith. But then I'm going to pray for you because, guys, you can't do this by yourself. So over and over, he gives them truth. Then he prays for them. Truth. Pray for you. Truth, pray for you. That's kind of the pattern that we have even in our church services today. We preach the word, and what what happens? The word brings faith, right? The word brings hope. The word brings life. But then at the end of the day, we understand that you can't just do this as a matter of following instruction and hope that it's all going to work without the power of God. Right? There is no sense like there's not just like a bunch of moral teaching that we're giving you and being like do your best kids here's here's your 15 keys to living a good life now go do it without the power of God it's impossible so here's the combo here's the left right punch speak the truth now pray that God enables them to do it here's where you put your faith God will get it done And it goes back to that verse, may God fulfill every desire for goodness you have. We talked about that. That's godly resolve. That's you when you're sitting there listening to the message and you go, I want to do that. I agree. I believe it. I'm going to do that. That's a godly resolve. May God fulfill that godly resolve. And the work of faith with power. What's the work of faith? That's when you finally act on what you believe. The work of faith is where faith becomes real. And in that work of faith, it says, may God fulfill your work of faith with power. It's the one-two punch. That's where the power is. So through all of this, may God, the Lord of peace himself, grant you continually peace. May he continually grant you peace in every circumstance. That's why it's different than what the world has. See, the world would say, may God put you in circumstances that are peaceful. Whereas Jesus says, it doesn't matter what circumstances you are. Take my peace. Paul said, I know the secret. I know the secret of being content in every circumstance. In every situation, whether I'm going hungry or I have more than enough, whether I'm cold or whether I'm I'm warm and fed well, he says, "I I know the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, the secret 
was he, he was able to find Jesus everywhere. He was able to find Christ everywhere. No matter what situation he was, he says, I can do this through Christ. That's so powerful. This is the God, this is Jesus that said, they may chop your head off, but they can't harm a head or hair on your head. They will, they can, they'll kill some believers, but they can't harm a hair on your head. He's showing you there is something a lot more powerful than what's going on around you or even what's happening to you. This sense of peace, I keep saying sense of peace, but it's not a sense of peace. It is actual peace. It goes beyond your senses. How many of you believe that you can have peace and, and not have a sense of that peace yet? Right? You can have peace and just not even feel it at the moment, but you by faith know there's peace. And that it will work its way to your feelings. Well, what's Paul say about that in Philippians? He says, here's what you do with that. Because anxiety is not peaceful, is it? Anxiety is your mind's response to things you can't control. Right? Anxiety is saying, I can't control this. I need to control this. I wish I could control this. So anxiety is you, like, I mean, do you ever, like, lift your dog in the air and their, and their feet keep wiggling like they're trying to run? If you never did that, have you lived? You know, this is what, you know, you lift them up in the air and they're kicking like, you know. You know, it doesn't matter how much they kick, they're not going anywhere. And this is what happens with anxiety and worry. You're, it's like you're being lifted up and you're trying to get tr- traction somewhere. You're trying to get some ground to run on, but there's nothing. And so you panic, right? You're stressed. You're burdened. Why? Because I can't control this, but I, 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 I can't fix this. I don't know how to fix this. So you get anxious. There's worry. But he says, be anxious for nothing. There's not a thing in your life that's worthy of you being anxious. There's not a thing in your life that's worthy of your worry. Jesus said, don't worry about these things. And that was said with the same conviction. I mean, every word that proceeded out of Jesus' mouth was a word from God, right? So why is it different when when God says, do not kill, and Jesus says, do not worry? Why are those two different things? It's a command from God, right? But what's great about Jesus and what's great about the scripture is that he doesn't just say don't do this. He tells you how not to. It's not a sin to be tempted to worry. It's not a sin to feel it coming on you. It's what you do with it that makes the difference. Because you and I know some people are addicted to worry. It's all they know. It's all they know how to function with. In fact, some people just don't feel like they're doing anything unless they're worried. Some people get mad at you for not being worried because they will, they will interpret that as you don't care. You're in good company. Do you know who heard that firsthand? Jesus, sleeping in the boat in the middle of the storm. And they said, Lord, do you not care that we're going to die? What's he getting in trouble for? You don't care. How do we know you don't care? I mean, are you sitting there laughing, eating popcorn? Like, ah, you guys are going to die, but I'm, I'm immortal. You're fine. No. I mean, how do you know he doesn't care? Because he's not exhibiting signs of panic. And you'll have friends and family that if you're not panicking, you're not caring. And if you don't care, you don't love. Right? And you feel, so what happens? You feel guilty. And I have to replicate the 
appearance of someone who's panicking so that I can make you feel better when you're panicking because at least you're not alone panicking. Those kind of people don't save anybody, right? It's not the guy that runs into a burning building that starts yelling, oh my God, that's where it's dying, we're all gonna die, we're all gonna die. That guy doesn't save anybody's life, <laughs> right? <laughs> you don't want that guy coming after you in the building. He's no help to you, right? Do you say to a fireman, why don't you care? You don't seem worried. Walks in confidently, gets the hose out. Why aren't you more worried? You should be, you should, don't you care that we're dying? No, the man knows how to save you, right? There's got to be somebody in every situation. There's got to be the people of God that are not so easily shaken that they can have that peace and know how to act. Jesus, when they were trying to throw him off a cliff, calmly walked through the crowd. If he had panicked, different story. Right? The power of God does not operate outside of faith. And faith and worry don't go together. Don't go together. You can't say I'm standing in faith when all that's going through your head is worry. Okay, let's be real. Let's just be honest. Sometimes you feel the worry and you say, too late, I'm already worrying the horses are out of the barn. What do I do now? Right, I know you told me not to worry, but I'm worrying. And now I'm worried that I'm worrying. (laughs) Right, because there's believers that said, you said faith wasn't active. Like our faith is hindered by worry and I'm worrying, so now my faith's not working. So now I really have a reason to worry because now my faith's not working. My prayers won't be answered. So now I'm worrying more than when I started. (laughs) Right? So what's the way out of this weird cycle you're in? Paul says this. He says, worry about nothing but in everything through prayer. And supplication. What's supplication? That's a request that you bring to God. Make your request. What's prayer? Prayer is two-way. Supplication is what you're bringing to the Lord. Lord, this is what I need. Prayer is conversational. Supplication is coming to the king going, here's my request. With thanksgiving. Now, thanksgiving is bringing to you a place that is contrary to worry because you can't be thankful and worry at the same time. Thankfulness is saying, thanksgiving is saying, God, I know what you've already done. I'm thanking you for what you've done. I'm thanking you for what you're doing. And I'm thanking you for what you will yet do because I know your faithfulness. Thanksgiving brings your mind to the place that your spirit's already at, which is resting in his faithfulness. Right? Your mouth is so important in this, guys. You guys know this. The tongue is a fire. It's deadly flame. Your tongue will get you in trouble. Your tongue is the rudder, James says. Here's the problem. The wind blows and blows their ship off course, right? We're trying to go north. The wind blew us east. So what do we do? We go on Facebook and talk about how bad it is going east. I hate the east. Oh, stupid east. I was trying to go north. Now I'm going east. Oh, east! Well, what's happening? Your rudder is pointed the same direction that your ship was pointed in. Where where should your rudder be? Your rudder should be pointed north. You want to get back on course. But the problem with that is people think you're crazy. What's wrong with you? I'm healed in Jesus' name. No, you're not. 
Yeah, I am in Jesus' name. I mean, I'm not, I'm not worried. I'm not afraid. My God's got this. I'm, I'm secure in him. He's on the throne. I mean, and people think, well, you're just delusional. This is just something they call cognitive dissonance where you know it's wrong, but you're convincing yourself it's right. Don't you know you're headed east? Quit talking like you're headed north. But what you know is the rudder turns the ship, not the other way around. So you have to start talking. So this is why the scripture doesn't say, in your head, begin thanking God. That's why the scripture doesn't say, you know, just think about, think about the prayers that you want to give God. God knows what you're thinking. The reason you're opening your mouth is not for his benefit, it's for yours. Right? Because, and I know I've, I've done this, and you might say, this is new age nonsense. It's Bible. It's Bible, right? Just because the New Agers ripped it off doesn't change the fact that it's scriptural. It's scriptural for you to begin speaking the promise rather than the problem and see it turn according to what you're saying. That's all through the Bible. I don't care what some sort of weirdo with granola on a mountain says. That's not from him. That's from the scripture. This is what Jesus said. Life and death is in the power of your tongue. This is, you're turning the ship. So when I open my mouth, and I've told you this before, but I used to rebuke the devil in my head because I would have a thought that wasn't from God. So I don't want to be crazy in the grocery store. So I just quietly in my head go, I rebuke you devil in Jesus' name. But the devil can't read my thoughts. So I'm rebuking him in a language he can't hear. Plus, my tongue is powerful. And when you're praising God with your mouth, your brain gets tired of fighting. It just comes along. So the pattern is, don't worry. Worry about nothing. Literally in the Greek, this is how it's put. Worried about nothing. Pray about everything. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Well, this is really little though. God's infinite. He can answer your prayer and the kid in Africa at the same time. Don't worry. Just pray about it. It's just a hangnail. Pray about it. If it's causing you worry, pray about it. With prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the God of peace, the peace, sorry, it says the peace of Christ will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So that's how you have peace in every circumstance. I want us to read as we kind of circle around for a landing. In John 14, we referenced this earlier. You know, it's the coolest thing to read the last few chapters of John, realizing that all of this is happening in the last few days of his life. In fact, the last Three, four chapters are the last hours that he's with his disciples. So literally the last thing he says to them before he dies. He's downloading all of this stuff. He's saying this is what's going to happen. This is what you need to be prepared for. This is what's going to... And he, he could have just said this is what's going to happen to me, but he goes on and tells them this is what's going to happen to you for the rest of history. He doesn't go easy on them. He, he's preparing them. Here's the deal. Um, 
There is a place where it says that Jesus had more things to say to them, but they couldn't hear it. They could not bear it because they had not yet received the Spirit. So I believe that the reason Jesus saved a lot of this to the end was that really the only way they were going to be able to really walk in this was, and this is why in the last few chapters, what's he talking about? The Holy Spirit. This is all going to be possible when the Holy Spirit is is in them because this is his presence with them. So what did we end on in 2 Thessalonians 3? What were the last things he said? Before he started talking about this is my letter and this is my handwriting, before that he said this. He said, may God himself, may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you all this peace. But then he says, may the Lord be with you. So the peace comes from the Lord being with you. Now, what is the most real expression of the Lord being with you? It's the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit's job? It's Him to be with you. That's the whole thing that Jesus talks about. I'm not going to be with you, but it's better for you if I go away, because if I go away, my Spirit will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. Right? So all throughout the Old Testament, He says things like, the Lord is with me, what do I have to be afraid of? But now through the Holy Spirit, there is such a literal, tangible, continual presence of God available to believers that the way of peace, the reason you have peace is because of the presence of God in your life. Now, there are other, there are other points to make. Of course, we, we've talked about obedience to the word of God. He is the prince of peace, right? He said, I will guide your feet in the path, the way of peace. So if you're not willing to be guided by the Lord, if you're disobedient and rebelling, then your feet will not be in the way of peace because you're not letting him direct your feet to the way of peace. But ultimately, what are we saying? That peace comes from the Lord's presence in your life. That's why David says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you or with me. So the whole reason we've got peace continually is because of his presence in our life. It's the Holy Spirit that's made that possible. It's interesting because we know God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son are all one, right? It's interesting throughout the scripture that in each one of those is referenced as a source of peace. May the God of peace do this. Jesus Christ, who is our peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So every part of the Trinity gives us peace because it's all God and he's a God of peace. So we have that peace that comes from him as father. We have the peace that comes from Jesus, the prince of peace. We have the peace that comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life is peace. So he says this in John chapter 14. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. You can imagine if he was talking to them, you know, Jesus wasn't speaking Greek to his best buddies here. He was speaking Aramaic or Hebrew. He would have said, my shalom I leave with you. And they would have understood because the Greek understanding of peace was different. Uh, certainly the 
later on, the Greek understanding of peace would have been shaped by the Bible, but the Greek understanding of peace was much like all of our understanding of peace without Jesus. It was a human construct. It was a way of creating something out of nothing. But the Hebrew idea of peace was all wrapped up in who God was. And it was this idea, this shalom idea of complete wholeness. Nothing missing, nothing broken, everything in place, order. It's actually why the scripture says God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Peace is everything's in place. Everything's right, everything's whole. And what's amazing about that, you think about hurricane damage right now. It takes everything and takes it out of order, right? The thief comes to steal, to kill, destroy. Destroy means to take something that's built and unbuild it. So you construct a building, you build it. You destruct a building, you unbuild it, you turn it to ruin. So the Greek word destroy there is the same as our English word. It means to take a building and turn it into ruins. What makes a building ruins? What's the difference? Because it's not like you have less bricks. It's not like you have less stones. You have the same amount of materials. What's the difference? It's apart. It's not fitted. It's out of order. Things aren't in their place anymore. So when you don't have peace in your life, everything's out of place. It's not that you have less of anything. It's just that nothing's in its place. God is a God of peace, not of confusion. God of order. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. Then he says this. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. Here's the thing that we need to get to tonight because I've talked about the truth being the precursor. So 1 Thessalonians, what? He gives you truth. First, or sorry, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 1 through 10, I'm gonna give you some truth. In verse 11, I'm gonna pray that God gets it done. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 15, I'm gonna give you some truth. Verse 16, I'm gonna pray that God gets it done. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5, I'm going to give you some instruction. Verse 6, I'm going to pray that God gets it done. Verses 7, on, I'm going to tell you about some things that need to get made right. By the end, I'm going to pray that God gets it done and gives you peace. So all throughout this, we're seeing that God's got to do this for it to happen, right? This is the work and the power of God. But truth is important. You got to know the truth because the truth, not just the truth, but knowing the truth will make you free. Truth brings faith. God's truth brings faith. We can act on that faith. But he says this, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So here's the thing that I'm getting to. If God's the one, Jesus is the one that is gifting you peace, then why don't I just have it? Right? Like, why don't I just have it? He gave me peace, so why don't I feel peace right now? Why don't I have peace? Because if he gave it to me, I should have it, right? If God wants me to have peace, I should have peace. Yet he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be fearful. You have a part to play in this. God is the one that's doing it. God is the one that is providing. It is his power. It is his gift of peace. But you have to add your amen to it. You're the one that decides if your heart's going to be troubled. Seems like that's God's doing, but God's the one that's going to give you the power to do it. You're the one that's got to make the choice. These things I say to you so that you will 
not stumble. Telling you all these things so you won't be fearful. Isn't that weird? I'm telling you all these things that are going to freak you out so that you don't freak out. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Like if you went through the mall and guys, I just got to tell you, there's going to be tsunami. It's going to like wash away Edmonton. It's going to wash away Lloyd Minster. So, So, you know, I'm telling you these things so that you'll just calm down. Like, what? I'm not calm now. What he's telling you so you're prepared so when the day comes, you don't say, what did I do wrong? Where did God go? Why has he forsaken us? But you go, he prepared us for this. So we built our house on a foundation that is stormproof because he told us this was coming. So don't let your heart be troubled. You have control of your heart. You have control over the fear that you entertain. You're not the source of fear, but you, you can tell it. Like the old saying is, you, you don't, you know, you might have a thought into your head that's not from God. It's not a sin that you had that thought. What's wrong is for you to make it a nice little cubby hole, for you to set it up a, a pull-away couch and a nice blanket Netflix so that it feels comfortable in your house. You can say, no, that doesn't belong here. It's important that you recognize foreign thoughts, Right? Like your body recognizes foreign viruses and bacteria and kills them. Right? So that's how your body kills disease. Those white blood cells go after stuff that doesn't belong there. And that's what we should be able to do and say, this is not of God, so it doesn't belong here. It's not a sin that it came in, but it's wrong if I give it a place and I entertain it. And there's these little movies that we play in our head. And you know what? For a while, they're actually entertaining. We play the movie, what would happen? What's the worst case scenario? And we just entertain it, entertain it until it begins to take over us. It's like that thing that we thought we were controlling, but the monster now controls us. What have we created? You know what I mean? You have control over your imagination, but your imagination begins to be so out of control that now you no longer can control the thoughts you're having. And this is where your tongue comes into play, and you begin to speak the word of God and get back to a place of peace. He goes on, he says this in chapter 16. We'll close with this. Verse 31, chapter 16. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that you, in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. So Jesus prayed something in the next chapter. In the next chapter, he begins to pray. And he prays. It's important that we understand he prays this prayer in their presence. He doesn't go away and pray. It says he lifts his eyes and prays. They hear him pray this prayer. And one of the things he prays is, God, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I'm asking you to keep them from the evil one. So he is not asking God to take them out of a situation that's tumultuous, that's that's chaotic. 
or even evil. But he's asking that God protect them from the evil. So listen to the language he uses. In the world, you have tribulation. In me, you have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. In me, you have peace. So am I abiding? I live in the world, right? I'm here. I didn't get raptured the moment I prayed. I'm still here. And there's tribulation. But I am not just in the world. I am in Christ. And in Christ, I have peace, even inside the world. In the world, in the world, tribulation, in me, peace. These are contrasting things. Even though you'll experience the tribulation of the world, he's saying, but you're in me, so the world can't touch you. Now, remember, he's told them they might put you in prison. They might even take your life, but they can't touch you. And the world says, of course we can. If we can put you in prison, if we can mess up your life, if we can mess up your your living situation, if we can mess up your family, we can mess you up. And we go, nope, you can't. Because you can't touch what matters in my life. My peace is not outside in. My peace is inside out. That's why you have weirdos like Paul and Silas singing songs in prison. I mean, really? Who feels like singing after you just got beat, shackled in prison? But these guys have a peace that passes any rationality. So do we. May God grant you peace continually. The Lord be with you all. Amen? Amen. Stand with me. Let's pray.